Okay, everybody, today's guest, Dr. Philip Ovedia, is a practicing cardiac surgeon who is doing everything in his power to keep people off his operating table. You know, we've kind of normalized open heart surgery and stents and all those other things, balloonoplasties, whatever they're called. We've normalized these things today. They're not normal and they are super invasive. I actually watched heart surgery in the OR when I worked for heart surgeon and it's a lot, people. And then I was with the people as they mended for six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, some with complications. So if you are headed that way, or if you feel like you have heart disease and you're not really sure how to reverse it, prevent it, stop it from getting worse, listen in. It was a great interview. We talked about everything from meds to food to lifestyle choices. And uh, Dr. Ovedia makes it all sound real simple to do, to change. So have a listen. Please share if you enjoy what you hear. I appreciate you. This is the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 Podcast. I'm Greg Cox, your host, and I believe it's time to bust the myth that aging equals decline or irrelevance. Nonsense. Aging happens, but it doesn't have to ruin your life. Each week, you'll hear experts who think and practice outside the box of conventional wisdom on how to age in good health so you can live fully expressed. I'm here to bust myths, help you embrace change, and live life your way. If you feel like the best of life has passed, it's time to get a little rebellious in your approach. So... I have to tell you a quick, cool story. When I was a chef, I was a professional chef for 30 years. And I went to work for a heart surgeon back in the 90s. And he wanted to open a quick food, heart-healthy restaurant. And okay. his why was to keep people off his operating table. This is like right. 30 years ago. So now I feel like I've come full circle. Yeah, that's great to hear. Where, where was it? It was in La Jolla. Okay. In California. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Rebellious Wellness Over 50. Today, I have a very special doctor. This is a doctor who wants to put himself out of business. Dr. Philip Ovedia is a cardiac surgeon, and his mission, as you can see from his cover of his book, I think it's backwards, is to keep people off his operating table. Dr. Ovedia, thank you for being here. Yeah, so great to be here with you. Really excited to share some uh, time with your audience. Yeah, well, I'm going to tell my audience a little bit about you, and then you can tell them your story because it's quite compelling. So you're a board-certified cardiac surgeon and the founder of Ovadia Heart Health. And your mission is to optimize the public's metabolic health and help people stay off the operating table. We're going to talk a little bit about metabolic health so people really understand what it is. And you have a practice, and you have a big social media following. You've written a book. You're trying to get the word out to as many people as possible we will talk about the book in a little bit, but I want you to tell people where you started this journey of keeping people off your operating table. Yeah, sure thing. So uh, my journey really starts with the fact that I was a morbidly obese pre-diabetic heart surgeon, and I recognized that I was going to end up on my own operating table, so to speak. And, you know, like so many of my patients, I didn't know what to do about it because- hmm. I was following the advice that I had been educated to give. Advice we've all heard, you know, eat less, move more, eat a low-fat diet, follow the food pyramid. And it wasn't working for me and it wasn't working for my patients. 
And so I, you know, started to ask some different questions, started to come across some different information. And I ultimately figured out how to overcome my own health challenges. I lost 100 pounds. I've been able to maintain that weight loss now for seven years. And along the way, I realized that, you know, we were treating heart disease uh, from the wrong approach. Mm. Uh, we were really looking at the symptoms instead of looking at the root cause. And until you understand the root cause of a problem, you really can't fix the problem. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that has led me to refocus uh, my career. I continue to work as a heart surgeon, uh, but I am increasingly focused and I'm mission driven about keeping as many people as I can off my operating table. Because ultimately, what I recognized was that the vast majority of what I do as a heart surgeon shouldn't need to be done. Heart disease is preventable, and we need to do a better job at the prevention than just focusing on the treatment. Has anybody mentioned that that's not a great business model for you? Uh, <laughs> many, many times. <laughs> So I want to start with most of my audience of women have men in their lives in some respect, but I want to talk about the difference between men and women's heart disease. And does one group end up more often on a table than the other? Yeah. So the main difference between women and men when it comes to heart disease is that women get a, a little bit of extra protection until they hit menopause. And so when you look at the statistics around heart disease, what you see is that women tend to lag about 10 years behind men. Men really start developing heart disease in their 40s and 50s. And, you know, for women, it's about a decade later. The other issue that comes up is for women, they tend to have, they more often have an atypical presentation. Mm. They may not get the classic kind of chest pains and shortness of breath that we attribute to heart disease. And sometimes they just have other symptoms like, feeling tired all the time hmm. or what they perceive as heartburn as opposed to chest pain. So those are some of the differences, but ultimately both men and women are largely affected by heart disease. Heart disease is the number one killer for both men and women. And so uh, both genders need to focus on heart disease when it comes to their overall health. I was reading uh, a publication the other day trying to understand the difference between all the terminology. There's heart disease, there's cardiovascular disease, there's, can you just, so what is heart disease really? Is it diabetes? Is it high blood pressure? Yeah. So, you know, heart disease does come in many forms, uh, but the most common one and what most people are referring to when they refer to heart disease is what we call atherosclerotic heart disease. And what that means is that there's plaque that builds up in the arteries of the heart. And these plaques can then lead to things like heart attacks. They ultimately can lead to things like heart failure as well, which is another kind of form of heart disease. And then we have things like valvular heart disease that affects the valves of the heart as opposed to the blood vessels. So many different forms, but atherosclerotic heart disease, heart attacks are, you know, what cause the vast majority of heart disease and heart disease deaths. And that's what I really focus on and most people focus on when we talk about heart disease. So am I correct in saying that you're a food first kind of doc when it comes to looking at making changes in a life? 
Yeah, because the reality is um, that, you know, the food that we eat is the primary input that we are giving our bodies and how our bodies react to that food, um, what we call metabolic health, is the primary determinant, the underlying root cause for many things, including heart disease, but also things like cancer, diabetes, you know, Alzheimer's disease, many mental health disorders we are now recognizing have a strong relationship to metabolic health. So it turns out that the food that we eat is the primary determinant of our health. And if we want to be improving our health, the answer lies in the food that we eat, not in medications, procedures, surgeries. Yeah. So when we go to the doctor, most docs don't say, we're going to look at you from a metabolic standpoint. They say, we're going to test your lipids. We're going to test your whole CDC chemical panel, right? But they don't talk about insulin usually. Most blood panels include a blood sugar. But I don't know many docs, or at least among my friends, that the doc puts it together and says, we're also going to test your insulin because I see some numbers. Your triglycerides are high. I'm more concerned about that than LDL. Tell us about metabolic health. What are those numbers that we should be looking for if our docs don't bring them up? Yeah, and that's exactly the problem. You know, as physicians, we're really educated to focus on the symptoms and the conditions, your high blood pressure, your diabetes, your heart disease, and we're not really trained to look at, look for and understand that underlying root cause. And again, it turns out that most of these chronic conditions that we suffer from have the same underlying root cause, metabolic health and insulin resistance. So I want to empower, you know, your audience and all the patients out there to understand this and to challenge their doctors about this. Metabolic health really refers to your body's ability to take those inputs that you're giving it. And as I said, that's primarily the food that we're eating and, you know, use it appropriately. There are three things that happen to the food that we eat. Uh, that food can get turned into immediate energy to fuel all of the activities that are going on within our body. That food can get broken down into its components to build and rebuild our tissues, another process that's always going on in our bodies. And then that food can be turned into energy and stored to be used when energy isn't available, when food isn't available. Now, our modern environment, our modern food environment has caused an issue where we end up storing too much energy and we never get a chance to use that stored energy. And that then leads to a whole host of downstream problems, um, which is where the metabolic disease uh, comes into play. So for the people out there who want to know, are, am I metabolically healthy? You know, how do I get my doctor to help me figure out if I'm metabolically healthy? There are five basic measurements that we need to look at. You can go to my website, ifixhearts.com. Right on the front page, there's a free quiz that's going to march you through these five components. But the good news is two of the five, you can just check on your own. You don't need your doctor. Those are your waist circumference and your blood pressure. So your waist circumference, you just take a tape measure, you measure just above the level of your belly button, do it first thing in the morning, 
And your blood pressure, you know, almost every pharmacy, grocery store these days has the little kiosk you can go into and check it on your own. And then the other three measurements are going to be very basic blood work. Like you said, almost every doctor does this blood work. They just don't look at it through the lens of metabolic health. So you want to know your fasting blood glucose level or your hemoglobin A1C, which is kind of a average blood glucose over about a three-month period. And then you do want to look at your cholesterol panel, but it's not going to be the LDL number, the so-called bad cholesterol that your doctor is so focused on. We're going to look at the HDL, what they'll call the good cholesterol, and we're going to look at your triglycerides. And just knowing those five numbers is going to tell you whether or not you are metabolically healthy. The statistics are pretty concerning because 88% of the adults in the United States cannot meet all five measures of optimal metabolic health. Hmm. Yeah. That's huge. 12% of us are metabolically healthy. And that's why we see all of this chronic disease that results from the underlying problem with our metabolic health. Hmm. What would you like to say about the food availability of the food, the most common foods, I would say, the most purchased foods put out by big food these days? How does that figure into a metabolically healthy diet? They are the cause of our metabolic uh, health problems. They don't fit into a metabolically healthy diet. And these are the processed foods, the foods that come in packages, the foods that have long list of ingredients. This is what is driving our metabolic health crisis. And that, you know, is empowering because that gives people the tools that they need once they understand that to reverse their course. And when you stop eating the processed food and you prioritize eating whole real food, the things that grow in the ground and the things that eat the things that grow in the ground, that's how we can improve our metabolic health. And I always tell people, it's a simple concept. It may not be easy to do because Mm -hmm. you walk into the supermarket and 90 plus percent of the stuff that's in there is not whole real food. And, you know, you got to understand that the food industry, they don't care whether or not you're healthy. All they Mm -hmm. care about is selling more food. I don't hold that against them. That's their business model. But they're not concerned about your health. They're just concerned about selling you more food. Yeah. And gosh, there's so much to say about the food. And sometimes when you look at a food, you don't have to even see the label. If it's bright orange, like cheese doodles, I will cop to having used to have a thing about cheese doodles. You just look at some foods and you know, I just got to keep going, right? Just bypass that whole aisle of stuff. When there's 88 skillion types of cookies and chips and this and that, by the same token, There's nothing wrong with having, well, you tell me if I'm wrong. What if I wanted to have some organic blue corn chips and salsa with my lunch one day? Yeah, I'm going to tell you that's a much better choice than other options that are out there. Probably not ideal. And, you know, it's really going to depend where you are on a metabolic health scale. Mm -hmm. The more metabolically unhealthy you are, the less you can tolerate any of these things. But there are always better options. And, you know, that's kind of one of the underlying meta principles here is at least you're thinking about the food that you're eating and you're making, you know, informed choices. 
all too often people are just eating what's put in front of them, what's available, what's easy, and they're not thinking about the food that they eat and the impact that that's going to have on their health. Yeah. I wanted to bring to the, well, to the watchers. Has anybody seen this on YouTube? I'm going to hold up uh, doctor's book uh, to note the foods that are on the cover of your book. And you a minute ago said, and the animals that eat the things, right? You include meat in a healthy diet. And I know that there are a lot of people that have been told that meat is bad because of saturated fat and on and on and on. Can you just talk a little bit about why you believe that that's not the case? Yeah. So I actually believe that red meat is the most nutrient dense, beneficial food that we can be eating. And not only do I encourage its uh, consumption, I know many people, myself included, who it is the primary food that we eat, the so-called carnivore diet. Mm -hmm. Uh, We as human beings evolved eating red meat. And animal products in general can provide us with every essential nutrient that we need. It turns out that vegetables are not actually essential to the human diet. Not that they're harmful, but they're not essential. And so the fact that we blame a food that we have been eating for our entire existence as human beings for a problem that only showed up within the past 100 to 150 years really doesn't make any sense. And, you know, there are many reasons that we kind of got led down that pathway. It's really a combination of poorly done science and some outright fraudulent science, to be honest, Uh, some science that was influenced by outside interests, those business interests that we mentioned earlier uh, from the food industry and the pharmaceutical industry have contributed to it. But when you look at the, the science around red meat, saturated fat, we find that neither can be shown to be harmful to our health Mm -hmm. uh, when you do good quality science around it. And, you know, the the macro, the high level data um, clearly shows the flaw in this thinking because over the past 50 years in this country, the consumption of red meat has gone down approximately 30%. And yet obesity, diabetes, heart disease, all of these chronic diseases continue to skyrocket and go up. So that on a high level just points to the fact that it can't be, you know, the red meat that's causing these issues. Yeah. And I want to give a shout out to LDL cholesterol, which is 80% is made in our liver. So it's clearly something the body was designed to have. And eating meat does not increase your old anyway on and on and on there are just so many things that have gotten all of this marketing attention mm-hmm. that we and i would have to say people are not enjoying their meals as much if you you know people won't eat butter they don't want to eat the egg yolk because of the saturated fat and yet fat improves mouthfeel and how we taste and enjoy our foods so i was thrilled to see that you are behind eating animal products But I do want to tell the people who are not into meat for whatever reason, they're vegan, they're vegetarian. In your book, you talk about how to eat metabolically healthy on five popular diets, the carnivore, there's keto, paleo, Atkins, Mediterranean, gluten-free, vegetarian, and vegan even. So if you somehow feel offended by the idea that we should all be eating meat, that's fine. Dr. Obadiah is going to tell you how to eat healthy. I always worry about vegans when as a coach, I just really try to I tell people that are vegan, I'm not the best coach for you because I don't know how to keep them nutritionally healthy, sound. Yeah, and that's where the challenge really comes from. But if you're going to take a plant-based approach, 
you know, the main thing again remains eating whole real food. So, you know, the kind of whole food plant-based approach can be done in a metabolically healthy way, but you got to stay away from the vegan junk food and, you know, all of that stuff, all of that processed food that yes, it's vegan and it doesn't contain any animal products, but that in no way means it's good for your health. And quite frankly, the fake meat products, I think, are some of the worst offenders here. Uh, Mm. Those are such a concoction of chemical garbage, quite honestly, uh, that they are in no way supporting anyone's health. Mm. And um, it's been somewhat heartening to see that they really aren't doing very well uh, on the market. uh, And a lot of those companies are having some serious uh, financial issues uh, because I think consumers just instinctually know this. But again, if you're going to take a plant-based approach, you got to make sure that you're getting adequate nutrients. I said before that animal products contain every essential nutrient that humans need. The, the same can't be said for plants. There are certain deficiencies, certain vitamins, minerals, and nutrients that we just can't get from plant products. And so it's mandatory if you're strict vegan to be supplementing and you might make that choice. And again, it can be done. It's just very challenging. It's much easier to support your nutritional needs with animal products than it is with plants. We talk about seed oils. Speaking of vegetables not being critical to our well-being, um, seed oils have taken over. We talk about things that have changed in the past, I don't know, 80, 100 years. Uh, the increase of intake of seed oils, I, I'm talking about corn, peanut, canola, all that stuff, has yeah. in some schools of thought contributed to the metabolic ill health of people. Why is that? Yeah, definitely so. And the reason why is because these are not things that our body even knows what to do with. They were not, they're not what our bodies evolved eating. Uh, and quite frankly, they weren't ever really intended for human consumption. These are industrial products. And when they needed more uses for them, someone figured out with enough processing, enough chemical modification, you can make these things not acutely toxic. They don't kill you right away. And so they were felt to be safe for human consumption. They're profitable for the food industry. So the food industry is more than happy to incorporate them into just about everything these days. Uh, But seed oils are inflammatory and they interfere with our body's normal machinery, what we call the mitochondria, which are the power plants of our cells. And our bodies think these are the natural fats that occur, the the fats that we get from eating whole real foods. But because they're not, they, they gum up the machinery, they screw up the machinery, and they lead to a whole host of problems. And I do think they are a primary component of what's driving this epidemic of metabolic disease. It's tough to separate out the effects of sugar and highly processed carbohydrates from the vegetable and seed oils because they're combined in nearly Mm -hmm. all of the processed foods that we get. So it becomes very difficult to separate out one from the other. One way to look at this is sugar at least is a natural product. It is something that humans have been eating, not nearly in the quantities that we eat it today, but at least we, our bodies know what to do with sugar. They don't know what to do with these industrial seed oils. 
I interviewed somebody named Udo Erasmus, who has, he was the founder of the four, six, eight, omega three oils that are kept refrigerated in health food stores. And he actually did a lot of research way back. He got very sick from pesticides, but he was talking about how most of the oils in existence right now are heavily pesticided. Then they have to be bleached after they're processed. And then they have to be deodorized because they smell really bad and nobody would use them. And they're mostly in clear glass bottles, which means that they're getting oxidized. But it's like this whole host of things that made me want to run screaming from the room. I haven't used them in years, but just to say people need more of this information to protect themselves. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's a book uh, right over my uh, shoulder here, The Ancestral Diet Revolution, oh, Dr. Yeah. Chris Kenobi. Uh, really uh, the authoritative work on uh, the effects of seed oils on our health mm. uh, just came out a few months ago and highly recommend that to people as well. So I was going to ask about supplements. You mentioned them a minute ago when we talked about vegans. Um, do you think that there are a couple of supplements that everybody should take? Is this a matter of get your profile done, your blood work done, and then work with a physician who understands supplements? Yeah, so I'm I'm really more of a fan of targeted supplementation, identifying deficiencies or having specific markers that we can use to determine if these supplements that we're taking are effective or doing what they're supposed to be doing. Again, if you're eating a well-rounded whole real food diet, there should be minimal need for supplementation. There are some common ones that come up. Vitamin D is probably the most common one. Unfortunately, for people who live in the northern parts of or further away from the equator here in the U.S., north of about Atlanta, Georgia, you're not going to get adequate sunlight for a significant portion of the year. And most people in general have been programmed to be afraid of the sun. And so because of those two things, Vitamin D deficiency is rampant as well. And so vitamin D probably becomes the most common supplement that I end up recommending. Magnesium is another problematic one. Our soil has been kind of stripped of the magnesium because of some of our farming practices. And therefore, the vegetables and the, the animals that are eating the plants uh, that are supposed to have sufficient magnesium levels for us to then get magnesium from, you can't count on that. And that's another common one that I recommend these days. But in general, I think that we should be targeted and I'm not a big fan about blanket supplementation, huh. multivitamins, all of this stuff. I believe that if we eat a well-rounded, nutrient-dense diet that incorporates a lot of animal products, we're going to get the nutrients that we need. Right. And speaking of genetics, which we're not, but let's throw them in there. There are some people that will have a problem metabolizing, getting the benefit of even a vitamin D, which is such a common, great supplement. So if somebody wants to take things to a next level, they can certainly find a genetic testing company that provides them with these SNPs so that they can say, oh, you have a VDR or, you know, and then you'll know for sure that this is something. The reason I can absorb, not me, but I'm saying somebody might not be absorbing their vitamin D, even though they take 5,000, 10,000 IUs a day. It could be genetic. So it's just another option these days. We have a lot of options. For yeah, that and that's kind of where thing. working with a good practitioner who understands this, knows the tests to run, can be very helpful. Yeah. I, I don't know whether you can answer this, but I'm thinking some people will be on their way to having heart surgery. So what does it look like? What's the tipping point for somebody? And can you bring them back from the edge if they take on a serious work with a practitioner and take on a serious change of lifestyle? 
Yeah, well, the good news is that we can detect heart disease early mm -hmm. uh, with the proper testing. And so this is another thing I want to emphasize to people. I am a big fan of a test. It's called a coronary artery calcium scan. It's an easy to do test. It, it, it's a CAT scan and they don't have to put an IV in you. You literally just lay down on the, on the scanner table, takes about five minutes, and it's going to show us the early development of heart disease. It's going to show us calcium plaques building up in the arteries of your heart. So the test is easy to do, inexpensive, usually can be done for around $100 in most places. Insurance usually doesn't cover it, but you know, very good investment in your health around $100. Mm -hmm. And you can find out early if you have heart disease developing, and then you can intervene and stop it. Another key thing to understand early on is whether or not you are insulin resistant. We talked about metabolic health before, and on a biochemical kind of level, insulin resistance is what really is underlying metabolic health. So you get the test that I mentioned before. You can add a fasting insulin level, another easy test to get done, and you can get a sense of whether or not you're metabolically healthy. And if you're not metabolically healthy, you can change that, and that's going to slow the progression of heart disease. Ultimately, most people who end up needing heart surgery, it's because, or this also applies to they may need a stent which is kind of a less invasive form than what I do as a heart surgeon. But ultimately, it comes down to either people have had a heart attack or they're having significant symptoms because these blockages in the arteries have built up so much. But I have seen people with fairly advanced blockages on like a coronary artery calcium scan or what we call a CT angiogram. They're not quite at that point yet. They haven't had the heart attack or they're not having a lot of symptoms. And yes, we can intervene and we can stop the progression and in cases even reverse some of that disease. So there is always hope. And even the people who end up on my operating table, I now talk to them about the fact that, yes, you need the surgery now, but the surgery still isn't going to address the underlying root mm -hmm. cause, why you got here. And if we don't change that, you're going to continue to have problems with heart disease, which is the typical course. But if you do change that, the good news is, is that you can recover a lot better and live a lot longer afterwards. So it's never too late to start making these changes. At the top of the call, you mentioned giving people information to take to their doctor to help them understand better what's going on in their body. Some docs are not interested in giving you the time or don't have the time because of the practice, seven minutes, whatever. We've heard that a million times. Yeah. Is there, what, where do they start? Where does somebody start to think about asking their doc or how should they ask their doc for more information? Yeah, well, I would just start by bringing up some of the things we discussed and asking your doctor, am I insulin resistant? Can I get this testing done? Can I get my coronary artery calcium scan done? And you're right. Unfortunately, some doctors don't have the knowledge and don't have the time to do this. And the unfortunate reality is you may have to find a new doctor. All too often, you know, we really haven't put a lot of effort into who our doctor is. We go to who the insurance company tells us to pick or who's convenient to us. And sometimes... If you want to get better results than everyone around you, you're going to have to put in a little bit of effort 
Uh, you may even have to spend some money. Maybe that doctor isn't going to be on your insurance plan. Uh, that doctor doesn't even take insurance because they realize how the insurance companies are actually getting in the way of helping patients and making them healthier. And the good news is we have lots of resources these days. Uh, mm -hmm. I run a telemedicine practice. I see people all over the country and even all over the world. And we can do that because of the technology we have available to us today. So you're not just stuck with your local doctor. Start seeking out the resources that you need and really start demanding that your doctors are helping you to do this. And if they're not, find the doctor that will. I love that. I think that's a really great way to wrap up. I just want to remind people that you have two websites. One is ifixhearts.com and the other is ovadiaheartheath.com. Yeah. Yeah. Ovadia Heart Health is a telemedicine practice where I work with patients one-on-one -on -one to help them not to need heart surgery, ideally. And iFix Hearts is where my team and I work with people in lots of different ways. We have coaching programs. We have courses and educational material. So I usually direct people to ifixhearts.com to start with. Like I said, take the quiz right on the front page. Find out if you're metabolically healthy or not. And then please reach out to my team and I, and let's figure out how we can help you get to where you need to be. Yeah. And we all love a good success story. And you've got some amazing testimonials and pictures on your website. So if you feel like that's not me, I don't think I could do that. You just have to go look at Dr. Ovedia from 2014 to now. And in case you missed it at the top of the call, he lost 100 pounds and has kept it off. That is, sir, I honor you for that to begin with. I know that can't be an easy journey. And I've always asked, is it ever too late? And the, I think the answer is always, it's never too late, right? Yeah, no, it's never too late. I, I now work with people in their 70s and 80s that are making these changes. I work with people who have already had heart surgery and are making these changes. And I work with people, you know, along the entire continuum. It, it's never too early, but it's also never too late to start making these changes. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I know we've given people a lot of great information and anybody listening who feels like, oh, maybe that's me. Maybe I should take another look at how I'm doing my life. Head over to his website and get some inspiration. Read some blog posts about what can be possible for you. And I wish everybody staying well, being well. And you too, Dr. Avedia. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I'll be back next week with another fabulous guest, everybody. Hey, everybody. I hope you've enjoyed that episode and I thank you for listening. I'd love to connect with you on social media if you happen to play over there on Instagram and Facebook. I'm at RebelWell50. LinkedIn, of course, is my name. And on TikTok, just look for the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 page. And I look forward to connecting. You know, this is a big year of connection for us. This is how we get through tough times is being in community with like-minded people. And if you're a listener, I believe we are.